Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing and for serving and for loving and for giving. Uh, thank you to our youth ministry, uh, lovely, beautiful students. Um, thanks to Josiah for uh, leading the way for them and all of our teachers and staff. Uh, it was going very well, and then you busted out Elton John, and then all heck broke loose. But uh, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, can you turn to someone next to you and say, I'm thankful for you. Uh, thank you for being here. You can yell at Sarah. I'm thankful for you, Sarah. <clears throat> this week, uh, I remember this. I remember it this week because um, it was this week, and because this is what I'm talking about. But um, I got a, a text message, uh, just a couple lines, nothing really urgent in it. But um, the message was written in all capital letters. And so as I read that message, uh, the first question I asked was, uh, the first question you ask when you get a message like that, <laughs> why are you yelling at me? <laughs> like, what did I do? Why are you yelling at me? There was nothing uh, angry about it, just in all capital letters. Uh, I, I got an email uh, following up with that, and, and it was in all caps again. And the question I asked again was, why are you yelling? Why are you yelling at me this time? And at the end, uh, right before, sincerely, whoever it was, it said, uh, I'm sorry for yelling at you in all caps. There's something that capitalizing your words have, uh, an effect that it has uh, on the content that you are communicating. I don't know if you've ever gotten a message. Um, there's, a, there's a difference between someone writing in lowercase letters, call me, and someone writing in capital letters, call me. Right? Uh, with a lowercase one, you're like, all right, I'll call you when I have time, when I get around to it after class. But if the message is in all caps, uh, it means you need to call me right now. Even if they don't say call me now, uh, in your heart, it's a sense of urgency that's communicated uh, with the way in which uh, the capital letters are used. There's something that happens when you get a message and it's written in all caps. What does it do? Uh, it gets your attention, first of all. That's what it does. And then it communicates a sense of urgency, a sense of importance, a sense of seriousness that you need to deal with this ASAP. Have you ever wished that there could be a way to put your prayers to God in all capital letters? Like you felt like you've got something going on in your life that is of such importance and such seriousness and such urgency, and you feel like you've been praying about this thing, but it just feels like, man, maybe there's got to there's be a way to kind of FedEx this to heaven. There's got to be a way to get overnight delivery, to priority mail this, somehow to get it to God. Do you ever wish that in your prayers that you could add a caps lock function to it in order that your prayers might avail in a greater way than they might be doing now? Today, I want to talk about uh, the biblical teaching on how we can do that when it relates to our prayers. Obviously, it doesn't use the imagery of putting your, your prayers in all capital letters. Um, but as we talk about this, I want to talk about maybe a dusty old spiritual practice that's been going on since the beginning. Old Testament saints did it, New Testament saints did it, Jesus did it, the early church did it, the church for hundreds and hundreds of years did it. But it's something that in the dusty corners of our modern Christianity, we've kind of lost sight of it because it's been blocked into a corner by comfort, by convenience, by ease, and by just because of the fact that it might take us out of those places. I want to talk about, well, I want to read from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, 
We're going to look into another spiritual discipline that will help us to deepen our foundations and deepen our roots for when the storms of life come, uh, a way that we can find strength and help um, in 911, our prayers. Matthew 4, um, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Um, this passage is um, the same context and the same uh, event in history that we talked about in the first sermon in the series, The Temptation of Jesus. And I'm, I'm not going to go deep into it, but I want to highlight and then just kind of illustrate uh, the importance of what Jesus is doing here and then bring it into our, our day and our context. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, that means he didn't eat food for 40 days and nights. Obviously, okay, at the end of verse 2, it says he was hungry. The tempter, this is Satan, the devil, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this passage goes on, but this is where we stop. This is God's word for us this morning. As we look into this passage, um, Jesus is fasting, right? Fasting in advance of what he knew was going to be not only a momentary 40 days and then three other temptations, uh, but what he knew was going to be a life that was attacked by the enemy to try to get him to fall. And it would culminate three and a half years later in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Jesus is fasting here. And in the no-brainer statement of the year, it said after 40 days and 40 nights, at the end of verse 2, it says, he was hungry. And when I talk about fasting, I know the temptation in your mind is to say, you know what, uh, I'm not going to pay much attention to this one because either I don't fast, Therefore, this has no relevance to me, or I have no intention of fasting because it's too difficult for me to do. Therefore, I'm just going to wait until this message is done. I'm going to sing the last song. I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm going to go eat lunch. But I ask you to push the pause button on that plan for now and just give the Word of God a fair hearing because He wants to speak something to us that could change not only our lives, but the lives of other people that we come in contact with. The reason oftentimes we think fasting is not for us, this I, I, well, I think for three reasons. One, it's hard. Two, we think it's for the spiritually mature people or for those who are like uh, elite spiritual leaders, the special forces, the Navy SEALs of the Christian army, not for people like me. And number three, because we've done it before and we just feel like, well, it didn't do anything for me. I'll give you that. I'll grant you those things. But what I want to do is I want to take these things and I want to bring them a flip side and help you to see the other side of it. And my hope and my prayer has been that through this sermon that you would be inspired to take that step at least into joining us for the Daniel Fast and hopefully, Lord willing, that this would become a more regular rhythm in our spiritual lives. Okay, three thoughts today. The first one is this. Fasting is hard, <laughs> but doing hard things is how you grow. You want to grow in your spiritual life. You got to do hard things. Okay, that's, that's the upshot. I think we could stop there and it'll be enough food for you to chew on and think on and meditate on. But here, here what it says. When, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, Jesus was hungry. He shows his humanity. He's a person just like us. If you hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, what would you be? You would be, similarly, you would be 
hungry. In other words, this is not easy stuff that Jesus is engaging in, nor is it an easy thing that we are asking you, that the Word of God is asking you to engage in. You will be hungry if you fast. And this is hard for us. In a certain sense, like outside of hearing sermons on fasting, it probably doesn't often cross our minds that I ought to consider fasting. Why? Because we have a way of dismissing things that are difficult for us, unless we see its genuine benefit. But fasting is hard, and it's especially hard because there are forces not only within our body, but there are forces within our culture that are telling us that you don't need to fast. We're living in a world that is obsessed with food. If you're a Christian, if you're, especially if you, if you serve on a praise team at any point, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, one of the first verses that you commit to memory. So whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. What does that mean? It means even in my eating, my use of food, my intake of food should bring glory to God. I should glorify God through my food. But what do we do as a culture? We don't glorify God with our food. We glorify our food. And therefore, we have so many TV shows about food, about cooking, so many tasty videos, short videos, or food network videos on social media about how to cook this or how to cook that. We are drowning in food. You're going to go out to eat lunch in a couple hours. You're, some of you are already thinking about lunch, but as you're eating lunch, you know what you're going to be doing? You're going to be eating lunch, and you're going to be thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner <laughs> because we're a people who are obsessed with food. We don't just consume food, we are consumed by food. What does that mean? Well, we use food to do something a whole lot more than sustaining us. They say you need to eat to live. Some of us live to eat. And that becomes our source of significance in life. We love telling people about what we, it's, it's not just us, like this is our whole culture. Like I think outside of cats and people and places maybe, food is the most photographed thing on social media, isn't it? Like we're constantly talking about our food. But sometimes we do that because this becomes our significance. Look at what I'm eating. Oh my gosh, you're always eating this fine food. You must be someone really famous or really important because of the food you eat. Look at where I'm eating. Look at where I'm eating. No one else gets to eat at all these places. And the frequency with which we're eating out at all of these amazing places so that people can say, wow, you know what? You've got an amazing life. Some of us, we find security in our food, significance in it. Many of us find comfort in our food, absolutely. When we're sad, when we're depressed, when we're stressed, when we need a little bit of rest, what do we do? We go to our comfort food. And we eat this because it, I'm not going to go to Jesus. This is a little bit more immediate for me. I can eat food. And so our food, food is something that is so highly prized within our culture. We're drowning in it. We're swimming in it. We're seeing it everywhere. And for someone who has access to food to say, no, I don't want to eat this food. I'm going to willfully become hungry. You're looked at as strange in the world. But it's not just that we live in a culture that is obsessed with food. Not only do we long, our bodies long for food, but I think for a lot of us, like our heritage kind of places within us this, 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 this strange idolatry when it comes to food as well. I was watching a movie um, called Minari recently. Some of you have seen it. It's not fully out yet to the, to the general public, but in, in, in limited releases it came out. And it's basically the... the uh, story of a Korean family that immigrates to America. And as the story is being told, um, it's basically, I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a typical immigrant's tale. But in one scene, um, the grandma who's been living in Korea 
is moving to America to live with this Korean-American family in this like podunk town in like some rural area where they, they, they uh, have to farm for food and stuff like that. And so as they come, Grandma brings this big old package, uh, and she brings it to the house, and uh, the, 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 the mother is like, hey, come, uh, the mother of the family. So not the grandma, but the mother's like, come, we're gonna, Grandma brought us some, some, some treats. And so Grandma's passing out the treats to the kids, the underwear and the, the toy and the snacks and things like that. And then she's like, okay, you can run, run along now. And the grandma busts out, uh, now I've got a present for you, daughter, who is the, the mother of the family. And as she opens it up, like this to me was like, I, I've never seen a movie that, that captured my emotions of like, that's my story better than this one did. Uh, I thought it was, the movie in itself was, was okay, but this particular scene where she opens it up and she's like, look what I brought you, my daughter. I brought you seaweed from Korea. Right? Any of your grandmas do that when they visited or, or relatives? Yeah, right? I brought you seaweed from Korea. I brought you these little fish anchovies, like tiny little ones that you can, you can get them maybe somewhere here, but I brought them all the way from Korea. I brought soybean paste, which stinks up the entire village. But listen, I brought it, and the mom is like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. She's like crying like Sarah Jane was crying. She's clapping and jumping up and down. This is amazing because she got her Korean food. It was wild. But I thought that's, that's how it, every time it played out when grandma came to visit us. She'd give us our, our, our underwear and then like our, our BBC or whatever it is, underwear with the tag on the outside, not on the inside, like weird underwear. And then she'd bust out the food. And my mom would be like, oh, mother, you did it. You're awesome. You're amazing. And, and my grandma would always, she'd call me Debida, Debida. She'd like, Debida. And she would say like in Korean, I brought you. You can only get this from there. You can only get this like red pepper from Korea. And she's bringing it out. And mom is like crying. And I'm like, what's the big deal here? It's like wild. But I was watching this movie and seeing it played out in another person's life helped me to understand that we come from, if you're Korean-American, if you're Asian-American, if you're an immigrant people, uh, we, we come from, from backgrounds from different countries where we come to America, we're living in America, and our relatives, our ancestors don't quite understand how you can survive by eating this non-ethnic food that they're forcing you to eat. How can you eat this cheeseburger and this pizza and all this processed food? You've got to be eating the good stuff that comes straight from the mother. It helped me to understand. That's why when, when, when my parents would call me first time I go to college, when you call your kids still sometimes, maybe you ask them, are you eating okay? What are you eating? Why do we ask that? Well, yeah, because they grew up in a generation where they didn't have as much food. That's why all our parents are shorter than us. But also because they, they come from a place where they don't know. This is, this is all we know is the great food we have. And, and you're, you're eating the food of foreigners. Does that work for you? And so ingrained in our minds is a sense in which you got to eat and you got to eat well. When we feed you, I'm not making you this other person's food. I'm making you our food. You've got to eat this and you got to eat lots of it and you got to eat thirds of it. Even if you're like food is coming out of your ears, you got to eat more of it because that's what they believe is important and they value that. It's love to them. So here you are, your bodies have its own longings, needs to eat three meals a day. Your culture is telling you you need to eat, 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 eat. And then you've got a heritage, an ethnic heritage that's telling you you need to eat, 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 eat. And so when, when someone says you need to not eat, not for the sake of anything else, but you, listen, you're going to be hungry for a spiritual reason. This is foreign to our ears. In fact, it sounds so foreign that it's something that we want to reject out of our bodies, out of our lives. This doesn't make any sense to us. Because fasting 
is hard. It's not easy. And then you tell Jesus this, and he says, just because it's hard doesn't mean you're not supposed to do it. I know it's hard. That's why I did it. I know it's hard. That's why you do it. Jesus said when the, br the bridegroom's here, you don't fast, but when he's gone, that's when you'll fast, and that's what his disciples did. They fasted. The early church fasted. Throughout the history of the early church, and you see amazing things happen in light of it. Jesus saying, just because it's hard doesn't mean you don't do it. Because it's hard, that's probably why you need to do it. Because you need to expose the idolatry of your heart. Not only the food, but what food represents to you. It represents my identity. It represents my worth. It represents my comfort. Saying it's hard, that's why you have to do it. Anything, anything. You ask our keyboard players up here, Kong and Sung, you ask them, hey, uh, did you, were you born like that, playing piano that well? No, they had to work at it. Well, actually, maybe Kong was born like that, but the rest of us have to work at it. We have to work at it. We have to practice. You want to be good at anything, you have to go through the difficult process. To be a good chef, to be a good singer, to be a good anything. It, I don't know, if you, it, it, when you watch like like the guys of Cobra Kai and the girls of Cobra Kai, you look at these, these, tech, these karate fighters, all of them got beat up. They got beat up badly in order to get to the place where they are. It wasn't an easy road. The road to greatness in anything is not going to be lined with ease and comfort and convenience. The road to greatness is going to have its mountaintops. It's going to have its valleys. It's going to be difficult. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we don't do it. If fasting is hard for you, one, you need to do it. But here's, here's, can I tell you why it's so hard for us? Like, to even think about doing it. Not as a diet, like Josiah said. Not as a, not as a health conscious thing, but for the sake of your relationship with God. You know why fasting seems so hard? Can I put it bluntly? Because we just don't love God enough. John Piper says an absence of fasting means we're content with an absence of the presence of God within our lives. The reason fasting for God is difficult is because some of us have been fasting from God, not intentionally, not willfully. You didn't set out to do that, but you're not feeding on God. The more we love God, I'm not saying if you, you don't love God if you don't fast. But the more we love God, the more we will desire to do things, even if they're difficult, for the sake of honoring the God that we love. Hunger for God in fast, that's basically what fasting is. It's, it's saying, God, this is how much I want you. My words aren't enough. My prayers aren't enough. My songs aren't enough. My service isn't enough. Let my body feel that in me. This much, God, I want you. It's not easy. It's hard. You get headaches. You get hangry. People are going to get upset, but it's going to expose those things within you so that you could actually change to become more like Jesus so that as you continue to do it, it would get easier and easier and easier. Fasting's hard, but hard things, that's how we grow. Okay, but I, I don't know. This seems like it's for spiritually mature people. The second thing that we see, yeah, fasting is for spiritually mature people. But it's also for people who want to grow to be spiritually mature. 
The reason Jesus fasted for 40 days, he loved his Father in heaven. That's clear. It's plain. It's simple. We understand that. We always act according to our greatest desire in any given moment, in any given situation. The reason we sin is because in that moment, I'm loving something more than I love Jesus. When we're fasting, we're saying, God, I love you more than I love food. And that's not always like that. Sometimes it's saying, God, I want to love you more than I love food. The songs that we sing, you know, sometimes they express your heart. They express your heart, Jesus, I want more of you. Other times they express what we want our hearts to say. Jesus, I want more of you. Jesus, I'm thirsty. Won't you come and fill me? Earthly things have left me dry. Only you can satisfy. We may not believe that in the moment. Some some of us do. Some of us don't. But that's our prayer. I don't want to be satisfied with earthly things. I want only you to satisfy me. Fasting is not only for those who are spiritually mature. It's for those who want to be spiritually mature. It's not only for the humble, it's for those who want to be humble. It's not only for those who are like Jesus, it's for those who want to be more like Jesus. A few years ago, um, there, was, there was an elder in our Korean congregation, and he's, he's, always, he's always been looking out for me. He wanted to make sure that um, I had everything that I needed. And so uh, one particular season of life, he wanted me to be healthy physically. And so he said, uh, Pastor DL, he said, David Moksanim, what gym do you go to? Where do you work out? Where do you go? YMCA, La Fitness, where do you go? And so I said, uh, I've never heard of La Fitness, but um, I go to the YMCA just to play basketball. I just go to play basketball. I don't really, working out is, is not for me. And uh, that conversation kind of died out. But I think about this. You think about a gym. You think about LA Fitness, or you think about the Y, or you think about Lifetime Fitness or Orange Theory, whatever it is. You think, okay, so you've got this gym. What kind of people would you say need to be there? What kind of people would you say, you know, that person, yeah, they really, that's, that gym is for them. I think if you think of a place with, with weights and stuff, you look at a person who's, who's huge, who's massive, they've got tank tops, they look like, uh, I don't know, the Incredible Hulk, and they're busting out of their, their, their jeans, and their jeans are ripped. Look at people like that who've got muscles like everywhere and they can bench press like 400 pounds. You're like, dude, that person, that lifetime fitness is for them. Then you look at a guy, he's like same height, but he's got no muscles. He can't barely lift a bar on which the bench press thing is, the, the weights are going on. You're like, dude, that guy's scrawny. He's six feet tall, but he's like 100 pounds, nothing, dripping wet with boots on. What is he doing? But you're like, that guy needs to be at the gym. Which person needs a gym, the big guy or the little guy? Well, they both do for different reasons. One guy goes to the gym because he's huge and he's strong. Another one goes to the gym because he's tiny and he wants to get strong. That's the same thing when it comes to fasting. Not just for those who are spiritually mature, for those who aren't there, but they want to be there. Because fasting has a way of jump-starting our relationship with God, our hunger for God. In other words, none of us who are here, if you're a child of God, can legitimately say, fasting is not for me. It is for you. The question is, will you do it or will you not? (laughs) How will you do it or how will you not do it? And I'm not trying to guilt you into this, but I'm just trying to put it back into your court to say there's a reason for us to listen because there are benefits, there are blessings, there are rewards to doing the things that God calls us to do. What are the rewards 
of fasting. They're, 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 they're plentiful. You look through Scripture and you look at people who fasted throughout the Bible. It's not a who's who's list of the most spiritually mature people. They're, they're people who are well known now. People like David, right? people like Daniel, people like Esther, people like Jehoshaphat. But when you look at them in the situations in which they were, they were not fasting because they were so on fire for God. They were fasting because they were so broken and they needed God in a way that they could not explain before. They needed to, they needed to meet and encounter God in prayer, but they needed those prayers to be in capital letters. And so here's David. He's committed the worst sin that he could commit. He committed adultery with someone, not only that, but in the cover-up, he murdered a man who was one of his most faithful soldiers. And as God's way of saying, hey, you know what? Uh, you done did it now. That child dies. And so what does David do? His instinctual reaction is, I'm going to fast because I'm so broken in the presence of God. This was not a, spiritually pow- a spiritual powerhouse. This was a man who's on the weakest, at the weakest level in desperation calling out to God, I need your help. And through that period, God restored and he renewed him. It's Queen Esther who became queen through shady means, and she's at this point where she's like, I don't know if I, want, if I can go into the king's presence. I could die. And her uncle's like, you got to do it or else the rest of the people are going to die. Esther is held up not as a prime example of a godly woman, but as an example of a wishy-washy Christian living out her faith in a strange land, and she has no idea what to do. And so she fasts, and she says, I need help. Has there ever been times in your life where you've been praying and you just felt like that prayer, man, I need to add an exclamation point to this? I'm not there yet. I need help. I need God. I need him to show up. I need the grace of God. I'm broken. I need him to, to break the chains of addiction. I need him to, to bring breakthrough in my life. I need him to do things that, that I can't do on my own. Then may I suggest that you take some time to consider what fasting could look like and what it can do in your life. When Jesus talks about fasting in Matthew 6, he talks about reward. He says, if you do this to be seen by people, you've already got your reward. But there's going to be a reward for fasting one way or the other. If you don't do it to be seen by people, then God's going to reward you. Because he sees everything. He sees everything. And he's a rewarder, Hebrews 11:6 of all who earnestly seek him. And when you seek him in fasting, oftentimes that's your way of saying, God, this is how earnestly I'm seeking you. Not that God hears you any better. It's like, I don't know if you, you heard about this kid who was like in his room and, uh, with his, with his uh, big brother, and he was praying to God for Christmas. He was like yelling to God, God, I really want that, I really want that, I don't know, that, that PS5 for Christmas. I really want that PlayStation. I really want it. And his older brother's like, dude, why are you yelling? God's not deaf. And he said, well, grandma's practically deaf, and she's next door, and she's the one who usually buys me the best Christmas gifts. You're not fasting in order to get God's attention. God hears you. It's about you saying, God, this is how much I desire you. This is how much I want you. God always has ways of rewarding. Is it wrong for us to seek obedience? Shouldn't obedience to God be for its own sake? I think, one, if you read through Scripture, you'll see the Bible constantly using rewards as a motivation for us to obey God. But that motivation, according to C.S. Lewis, at least only works biblically, is only a pure motivation if it is a natural reward for what you do. 
a practical example here. Some of us grew up in homes where our parents valued education so much. They said, if you get all A's throughout high school, we're going to buy you a new car. And so your motivation to get all A's and to study is that I might get a new car. If, that was, if you're asking, is that a biblical motivation? They would say, no, that's not a biblical motivation. Because that reward has nothing to do with the work that you're doing. But if you say, the reason I'm studying so hard is that I might learn more. The reason I'm studying so hard is I can get good grades, I can get into a good college. The reason I'm doing this is so that I can honor God. The reason I'm studying so hard is so that I can get a scholarship. These are natural rewards of the efforts that you're putting in. Right? This is the proper motivation. Hey, come to church with me because there's a great, I don't know, there's a bunch of uh, eligible single men at our church. You should come. That's not a healthy motivation for coming to church. Nor is it, hey, come to church, you can get free food. That's not it. Come to church, you could hear something. You can meet people whose lives have been changed. Come and experience a goodness that you've not experienced before. Come and find hope and find purpose and find meaning. Right? That's a godly biblical motivation. So when it comes to fasting, absolutely we're driven by the promise of reward. But that reward is not that I'd be recognized by people. Not so that I can get an award at the end of the day for making it through Daniel fast. Not so that people could say, wow, you know what? Uh, I think you're a really great guy or a great girl. The natural rewards of fasting are abundant in and of themselves. That there's a greater fruitfulness to our prayer lives. There's a greater urgency to our life with God. There's a greater hunger for the presence of God. But the deepest and greatest reward is that you get more of God's presence in your life. If someone said, listen, hey, this Tuesday, this Tuesday, I can give you an intimacy with God, a greater measure of, of God's nearness and presence and power in your life unlike anything that you've ever known. Would you take that? Like, what would you pay for that? Like, what would you pay to have that kind of soul-piercing intimacy with God, that kind of a warmth of intimacy where you just, His voice is so clear to you, where you feel His hand on your, on your back as He walks with you. What would you give for that? Would you give $1,000? Would you give $10,000? What would you pay for it? He says, what if, what if by fasting you could encounter God's presence. Charles Spurgeon said, the weeks in which our church fasted were the highest times of our church life. He said, never have heaven's gates been opened wider to us than in those days that we were fasting as a church. Never have we been that close to the central glory of God. Charles Finney Great soul winner, probably the greatest winner of souls, they said, since the Apostle Paul. He said he would fast once a week, and, and when he felt like power in his ministry was weak, he said he would fast for two to three days, and he said every time that sense of power came rushing back to him. What would you do to have that kind of intimacy, that kind of fruitfulness in your life? You feel like your Sunday school class, your small group is a little bit stagnant. 
You feel like your house church ministry was going well when we started, was going good when we had a couple people baptized, but now it's just kind of running on status quo. Right now, we're just kind of on cruise control. Praying is a rebellion against the status quo, but fasting and praying is a defiant rebellion against the status quo of complacency, of apathy, of just staying where we are and being okay with being okay. Fasting and praying is a rebellion against that to see, God, I want to see these people's lives changed. I don't want, to, I don't want them to remain, ba- they're 50 years old. <laughs> How long are they going to be like this? that we would rebel against the status quo by praying and adding an exclamation point to that through fasting. It's not just for the spiritually mature. It's for those who want to be spiritually mature. That's the second thing. Well, you can say all that. I see all that. But hey, I've tried it before. Nothing's happened. Here's the last thing. Okay, last thing. Fasting itself is pointless. But paired with prayer, it's powerful. Fasting itself is worthless. Every year, Harvest 201, we go through a season, a day of fasting. And then we gather together and we pray. We pray for God to touch His people, fill us with His Holy Spirit. And then we kind of talk about that time. And this year, one of our, one of our sisters, Mary, said, fasting without praying is just starving. I think many of us fast like that. It's not just fasting, it's starving. We've been through Daniel fast and then nothing spiritually seems to happen. Just have a greater appreciation for fruits. I give thanks to God for meat more, (laughs) for sweets and desserts. But maybe what we think was fasting was really just starving. Yeah, we pray, but there's nothing different with the way that we pray than the way that we pray during the normal times of our lives. Fasting without praying is starving, and fasting in itself is pointless. You ask the Pharisees that. How was your fasting? It was pointless because their reward was to be seen by men and women and to be praised in the marketplace and the synagogues. There was no reward from heaven. It was pointless. Isaiah 58, ask the people of God, how was your fasting? Was it it effective? God says to the people of, Is, of, of Israel through uh, Isaiah, says, is this the kind of fast? That's not the kind of fast I'm talking about. Fasting without praying is just starving. Fasting in itself is pointless. To me, one of the most pointless buttons on a computer keyboard is your caps lock button. On my computer, a green light comes on when you push it, but that's about it. Some computers don't even have a green button that comes on. Every other button you push, something comes out on the screen when you start banging on it. But the caps lock doesn't do anything. It's worthless. It's pointless. Does this even work? Ah, but when you combine caps lock with the other letters, these letters, and you put them together, all of a sudden you put caps lock in with these letters, and it adds a sense of importance and a sense of power that was not being able to be communicated apart from it. Fasting is your caps lock button, guys. It's worthless in and of itself. But when you combine it with prayer, it becomes powerful. That's why when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, they come down from the mountain, and immediately they're met by a demon-possessed guy, a little boy, and his dad. And his dad's like, Master, Jesus, hey, your disciples, they couldn't do anything about my kid. Can you do something? 
And Jesus rebukes them, unbelieving generation. If you can, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And all this stuff happens. And then his disciples are, are, are embarrassed. They're humiliated because they're like, guys, check it, check it. I'm going to drive out this demon. Bam, nothing happens. Up, oh, heavens must not have heard. Let me try again. Come out, nothing happens. Boys still convulsing on the ground, shaking. Like, uh, let's wait for Jesus to come. They're humiliated. Jesus, why couldn't we do it? says in Mark's gospel, in some of the manuscripts, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. In other words, there are certain things can only be done by prayer and fasting. Maybe the things that you've been praying for are one of those things. Maybe the spiritual breakthrough that you've been praying for for your people, longing for for your people, the addictions in your life, the sin in your life, the temptation in your life, maybe those chains will be broken. Maybe it can only come out through prayer and fasting. Some things are good. Gosh, water's amazing, powerful, right? H2O, oxygen and hydrogen. Did you ever hear this? Johnny was a chemist, but he isn't anymore. What he thought was H2O was H2SO4. What he thought was water is really sulfuric acid. Hydrogen, oxygen together, pretty powerful. But when you add sulfur to it, it becomes an acid that can melt things out of your body like nobody's business. Prayer and fasting. Powerful. You engage in these disciplines together. Esther fasts. The end result of that is that her people were saved from genocide. King Jehoshaphat fasts doesn't know what to do when he's being attacked by the armies of Moab and Ammon. He fasts and he prays. God says, I'm fighting for you. Moabites and Ammonites start turning on each other. And they kill, they slaughter themselves. Daniel doesn't know what to do. He fasts and he prays. Gets a revelation of a vision. There's power. Power of God available to us when we do hard things. When we seek him adding this exclamation point to saying, God, this is how much I want that. This is how much I want you. More than food, I want the salvation of my family members. More than food, I want the salvation of the lost. More than food, I want to see your guidance. More than food, I want all these things that we pray for. Once a day, Martin Luther fasted, and he became the channel through which a reformation came that's impacting our lives even today. Jonathan Edwards fasted once a week. Once a week, he ushered in, through the fasting prayer, ushered in the great awakening in our nation. John Calvin, John Knox, known to be people who fasted. In our day, about eight years ago, we had a recently graduated college student. I think he was 22, 23 years old. He was a house church shepherd. And his house church was going really well, actually. It was going well. You know, people were coming out. People were excited about it. One day, he called me, and he's like, hey, hey DL, I want to... I want more. I'm frustrated with my, just the, the slow growth. I want more for my house church members. That I want to fast. I said, all right, do it. That's awesome. What are you thinking? I want to fast 40 days. Fast 40 days. No food for 40 days. Okay. If you've been with us for the last couple of years, you know who this person is. I want to fast for 40 days. 
my two main prayer focuses is one, my house church, and two, my family. I've got lots of cousins and relatives within our, you know, in, in my life, and I just want to see them. I just want to see them fall in love with God. So he fasted, he prayed, and after a couple days, he called me up. He's like, hey, I really, I've been getting these bad headaches. I'm not sure if I should, if I should be doing this. So I said, yeah, I think first, uh, first three days are going to be really hard. We'll get better after that. But I think you should drink lots of water and pray, and I'll, I'll pray more for this for tonight. Um, tomorrow morning you still feel like, man, I'm going to throw up. I don't think I can do it. Then, you know, let's talk about it tomorrow. Tomorrow morning came, and he said, I feel much better. I feel good. I feel like, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight through this. And so he did, and for 40 days, like he prayed, and he sought God, and he fasted. And I don't know. I don't know everything that happened as a result, but I do know that there was one girl in his house church. She was not Korean, but she started coming to our church because she loved uh, Koreans. She loved Korean culture. She loved Korean music, K-pop, Korean drama. She loved Korean stuff. Um, heard of Jesus, didn't really know him. But she started coming to our church, got involved in, in this young man's house church. And through that time, man, God did a number in her life. Her, the reason she came to our church was to learn Korean language a little bit more in culture so you can go and live in Korea. <laughs> that was her dream. Well, she's living that dream now, and she's knocking on the door of North Korea, waiting to go in because of the work that God did through that house church and through that shepherd. And I think a lot of it through that time of fasting where her life was hooked for the glory of Jesus. So now the young man sitting here now, house church shepherd, recently married. God did a number in his life as well. Like, I don't know. I don't know all the stories. We'll go to heaven and we'll see that. But he's also praying for, for his family. And there's one cousin in particular who was uh, kind of, you know, spiritually he was out there. He was going to college, was drinking a lot on the weekends, was president of fraternity and living that life. And, and as his, his cousin fasted and prayed for him, we were all going up to a retreat, actually a retreat that Sarah was talking about, Harvest Retreat up in Virginia. It was a, I think it was a different year. But a bunch of us were going, uh, and, and I think that might have been where Sung and Eunice met, and now they're married. But we went up to that retreat together, um, and, the, and the, it was long after the deadline. But this young man, uh, whose cousin had been fasting and praying for him, said, hey, Pastor D.L., I want to go to that retreat. I was like, you do? All right, uh, I think the deadline's passed, but uh, let me shoot a message up and see if you can go. And immediately they're like, all right, or someone dropped out or something like that. And so I'm um, very curious as to why he went. At the end of the retreat, everybody's taking pictures. It's all beautiful out there, laughing. Oh, you know, it's so great to see you. I'll see you on Facebook. I'll see you on wherever, blah, 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 blah. He's like, hey, uh, can, we, can we talk? And so we sat outside, and he's like, I think God changed my life at this retreat. I'm so glad I came, and I've made the decision that I'm going to um, withdraw from my school. I'm going to transfer to UCF. Uh, I'm going to break my lease. I'm going to come back here to Harvest. Uh, I want to grow in a house church. I really want to get right. I really want to get right with God. And, uh, I mean, it was, a, it, was, it, was a, it was a powerful, powerful conversation, uh, just a really meaningful thing. And, and I remember his cousin was there also, and just inwardly filled with such a gratitude 
as he could literally see. A lot of times we don't see it. A lot of times we don't see it. But he's seeing person by person, like people that he's praying for, changing and giving their lives over to the Lord. And you long for more in your relationship with God. You are as intimate with God as you want to be. Nothing's holding you, nothing in heaven is holding you back. We are the limiting agent. Do we want to do hard things? Are we willing to take that step of faith? Are we willing to put ourselves out there so that not only would our lives be changed, but others would be changed as well? Are we willing to take that step of faith? Because can I tell you something? Whatever step we take, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be nothing compared to the ultimate step that was taken in order for us to experience intimacy with God. Jesus not only fasted, he not only fasted for 40 days, but he left the comfort and the convenience of glory, his gated community in heaven, in order to come to the slums of Palestine, to get dust and dirt on his feet, to get them on the feet of others, and then with his own hands to wash them. And then at the cross, Jesus extended his arms as far out as the Roman soldiers could spread them. And he said, I'm opening up my arms and opening up glory and opening up heaven and opening up intimacy with anybody <laughs> who would want to come by faith. The door has been opened. You can be as intimate with Jesus, with God, as you want to be. He's done the hard work. All we need to do is, is step in to the shower of God's grace that is falling we step into it when we pray. We step into it each time we read the word. We step into it each time we fast. But everything has been given to us in order that we could have everything that we've longed to have in our relationship with God. It's here. Will you step into that? Will you embrace that? We've got a Daniel fast coming up. We've got a sign-up sheet out there. Man, I, I want to encourage you. Let's do this together. It's hard. That's why we do it together. There will never be an easier time to do a hard thing than when we do it together starting next Monday. Let's step into that. Lent is coming up. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Let's not just fast that thing that we don't even care about. Like, I'm going to fast chocolate. I haven't eaten chocolate in eight years anyways. I'm going to fast. Let's do something. Let's step into this place where we could experience the glory of God. And let's tell stories and let's share about the goodness of God to those who need to hear. Let's enter into this glorious reality. Let's pray together. Let's pray, let's pray. Lord, I want to know you more. I want to know you more than I do now. I want to be like Jesus, less of me, more of you, less of my pleasures, more of intimacy, less of my comforts, more of a power of God, less of the things of this world that might have more of Jesus. Can we just pray? And maybe if you're wrestling, can you pray through that? I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to pray a simple prayer maybe. God, if you don't want me to fast, then show me. And if you don't show me, then, Lord, I want to do it. It's bold. It's dangerous. It's simple. And maybe for some of you, he won't. Maybe for some of you, like, because of health reasons, you shouldn't fast. Not from food, at least. But maybe the Lord God is calling you to step into a new reality. spiritual disciplines that you haven't 
experienced before. Let's pray and ask the Lord that he would help us, give us strength to do difficult things for his honor, for his glory, for our blessing, and so that this world be changed. Let's pray for a minute, and then I'll pray on our behalf after about 60 seconds. Let's pray together. in heaven as I think about the spectrum of human experiences that are captured here in this room. There are a lot of things that we ought to be praying for. A lot of things that we are praying for. At the same time, situations that are so urgent that perhaps you'd be calling us to fast and pray that we might experience you in these new ways. Family that's dealing with a loved one with cancer. Family whose child has gone wayward after having been so committed to the church. A marriage that's falling apart and conveniently ignored. fissures are breaking, foundations are crumbling, we're at our wit's end. Decisions that will affect our future about a job, about college, about grad school, about direction for the future. And we've prayed and we haven't seen the answer to. Perhaps you'd be calling us to say, God, this much I want you in this situation. Family members who are lost, friends who once grew up in church who are wayward now. A generation that's being tempted and swayed by an enemy. Could it be that these are the ways that you're awakening a sleeping giant of a fasting church to awaken in order that we would take back our inheritance in Jesus Christ? Father, help us. Lord, we need you. We don't fast because we're great. We fast because we're weak. We don't fast because we've got anything to prove to you. We fast because we're desperate for you. So Lord, help us. Help us to fast. And when we fast, help us to pray. Because some things can only come out by prayer and fasting. Help us. We need you. We need you, Lord. We love you because you've loved us first. 